This evening, we will be praying the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It's a bit longer passage than we've normally prayed in Lectio Divina, 28 verses altogether, uh, but it is uh, a unit that I think we cannot really break up. Right after the Lord begins his ministry and chooses his first disciples, he experiences a tremendous support from among the people. And we see that also at the very beginning of chapter two. But then we begin to see a whole series of forms of opposition to the Lord. And it's important for us as we reflect upon that to think of the different ways in which we ourselves can become uh, negative and carping and tearing down the works of God amongst us in the ways in which we find it day by day. It's a thing to reflect upon as we look at chapter two of the Gospel of Mark. A second point, I think it's always good whenever we're praying Lectio Divina, to, to think of a thing I heard of years ago when I first began to reflect upon this form of prayer. And that is that somebody said, you know, the word of God always must speak to our head, to our heart, and to our hands. It illuminates our mind to show us the path. Without vision, the people perish. And from the word of God, we find vision, light for our path. It also speaks to our heart, it fills us with an experience of the presence of the living God, a love for the Lord God and for one another. But it's not enough just to do that. We also have to do something. What does it lead us to do practically? To go and do likewise, our Lord often says in the gospel. Do likewise, not think likewise or pray likewise, but go and do likewise. So as it does not say in the, in the Gospel of Mark, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. That's the hands part. So I often think it's a kind of a handy thing I use as a bishop to whenever people come with proposals, uh, different things, what does it say to the head, to the heart, and to the hands? To know, to love, and to serve God. So those are some points we might reflect upon as always when we're praying uh, anything in scripture, but particularly uh, this evening as we pray the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us, that we may hear these words, not only with our ears, but with our heart. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Take away from us all those cares and worries which so clutter our minds and the sins which weigh us down and are a barrier. Forgive us so that your words may find a pathway to our hearts and that we may truly listen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak thus? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they 
thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your pallet, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd gathered about him, and he taught them. And as he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he sat at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the part, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. When he returned to Capernaum, his home, his base for missionary activity in the area, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. We know how the crowds came to Jesus because they sensed in him the presence of God. Where God comes amongst us, people respond. Crowds came to him, an abundance of people. Now their faith was not so deep because the same people later on were cheering him and then saying crucify him. So we have to be attentive to that as well. But the people came, they saw something extraordinary in the presence of our Lord Jesus. They were caught up by that. And we need in our own lives to have a sense of that. We cannot ever 
look upon our faith as a tight little reality for the, the pure, for the few. I think there's a military service, something like the proud, the few, the, you know, elite, in other words, the elite. The Lord's not into elites. Whenever I, my old Episcopal nose begins to smell something elite, I sniff a little bit and say, there's a problem here. I don't think it's quite having the smell of the sheep <laughs> because an elite doesn't have the smell of the sheep. So there's a crowd here, just like, you know, that big St. Peter's in Rome. It's not an elegant little church. It's just a big marble barn with all kinds of people. You could march a brass band down the middle of it. It's God's people all called together. And so we see he reaches out to the many. They come. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he preached the word to them. We don't get so much the content of the word in Mark's gospel. We get it in Matthew's more. The Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, things like that. We get some. But he simply says that he preached the word to them. The people come together. They need the word that gives life. And he is the word who's doing the preaching. As St. John tells us. So... Our faith is in the one who is our Lord Jesus, but he also gives us content. He preaches the word. But Mark doesn't really spend much time telling us what the word is. I think he assumes we know it. It's also a reminder that not everything is written down in the gospel. It's assumed that the living faith, the living tradition moves on. In fact, when this was being proclaimed to the people, they already had that living faith, which is the vibrant word proclaimed through history by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's think of this. Our Lord is there, crowds coming. Let's try to get out of anything, any hint within our hearts that we can be a pure little remnant, just me and Jesus and everyone else, forget it. We've got to broaden ourselves. He reached out to the many and he preached the word to them the content, the word that gives life. And may we be attentive to that word in our hearts. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. So much do the people want to get near him. They're coming carrying this friend of theirs who's paralyzed on a kind of a stretcher. And the crowd is around Jesus, but they can't get at him. So they go up the stairs and these Palestinian homes have a flat roof, sort of thatch and clay and things like this. They start digging away to get at Jesus. Think what they do to carrying the stretcher, getting their friend to Jesus. I mean, if we had that enthusiasm, a tiny bit of it, to try to get to Jesus, do we try to get to mass that seriously? Some of our brothers and sisters do around the world. They go through almost anything to get to Jesus. Break through the roof, pull it up, get to the Lord. We need that yearning, that thirst, that hunger for the presence of the Lord. It puts us to shame. Especially, too, if we think of our brothers and sisters around the world who are being so severely persecuted, who have to cut through a lot more than our simple roof to get to Jesus. But they yearn to do it. And we who, who can walk down the street and go to Mass anytime we want, we can walk in and our blessed Lord is present in the Holy Eucharist anytime, so free, so open, so rarely visited, so much a rebuke to each one of us. So let's think of those, those four men with their friend <laughs> rushing there, pushing through the crowd. We've got to get to Jesus. I've got to get to him. And digging away, you can imagine what our Lord is 
speaking to the people and they're crowded around the door, suddenly big chunks of clay start falling down and the roof opens up and they're laying, lowering, the, lowering the man down, their friend, to get close to him. So let's pray for that in our hearts, our heads and our hands, but mostly our hearts, that we will have that passionate yearning to be close to the Lord, to be with him, and to bring to him ourselves and anyone in need. They were searching for healing for their friend. They helped their friend to get to Jesus too, because he couldn't do it on his own. And there are a lot of people out there who can't get to Jesus on their own. They don't know. They need friends to bring them to come to the Lord. That too is a challenge. What do we do with our head, our heart, and our hands to try to invite people? And they came to him, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. It was a physical illness. But how many of us are paralyzed? and We can't get there on our own. We need help. Just as the apostles brought one another to Jesus, we need help because too often we're paralyzed. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. May we have their passionate desire. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's not why they brought him. He was paralyzed physically. I don't think he was thinking, they were thinking about his sins particularly. It seems our Lord missed the point that they were making. He didn't later on, of course, but at first that's not, his first concern was not with the physical paralysis. He dealt with that as a side issue later on. He was first concerned with the spiritual paralysis. And so the man who hoped to hear get up and walk, which he heard later in due time. But first he hears, my son, it's a gentle word of encouragement. Your sins are forgiven. That's what we need first. Be freed of the paralysis within our hearts. That's what we need. And some people experience physical illness too. And, and sometimes our Lord would perform miracles of physical healing as he does a bit later but it's to break open that paralysis of the heart, which is sin, the contraction that comes with the ego. That's our greatest need. And so he says he doesn't mention the sickness. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. And he saw their faith, not only the paralyzed man's faith, but the friends as well. All of them, all five of them. We do this together. Our faith, we strengthen one another. We believe in the Lord and our faith supports one another. And we bring people to Jesus and he gets to the heart of things, which is our spiritual life. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Let's give thanks to the Lord for his gracious mercy in our lives. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak thus? It is blasphemy. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? There they are. As indeed throughout this portion of Mark, they're waiting to catch him. And that kind of sharpness of spirit, we can look and say, oh, look at them over there, those scribes being so critical of Jesus. We look at the window, we look through it, and we see the people out there who are so critical, even indeed hypocritical, but hypercritical and hypocritical altogether. But then that window becomes a mirror and we're looking at ourselves. How often do we have within ourselves that censorious nature, the spirit of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son? The faults of others are so manifestly clear and we can be critical. And here they are critical of the mercy being shown by the Lord and by the fact that they interpret him as claiming to be God. And they're correct. They're correct in knowing what he's doing. They're not correct in their critical spirit. I think sometimes, you know, you see those snakes being milked for venom, you know, put the little glass on. I think maybe we should keep one of those things around from time to time, just keep it in a pocket maybe and just pull it out every once in a while and go, You know, pour it out somewhere, watch it go sizzle on the ground. Our life would be a lot, uh, a lot better, I think, if we, we did a bit of that. Come on, scribes, lighten up. There they are. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak thus? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your pallet and walk? Of course, it's equally easy to say both, but you can't prove the sins are forgiven, but you sure can prove something's happening if he says, take up your pallet and walk, and he does, which is what he does but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up his pallet and went out before them all. And the physical miracle again is one of releasing from a paralysis of the body. And it had an effect for however many years it had an effect as indeed even the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead had an effect for maybe a couple of months or whatever it was. But it is the freeing from the paralysis of the spirit, from that being bound up by our sins. You know what Augustine talking about, the threads are so light we do not notice them till they become ropes we cannot break and we get tied up. It's that freeing we really need. All of us need it. But he's using the physical miracle as a, a blessing for the paralyzed man and for his friends, but as a deeper lesson for us all. Let's ask the Lord to free each one of us from whatever it is that especially paralyzes us. What is it that paralyzes me in my own heart? Is it anger, perhaps? That can do it. Am I paralyzed by a, a memory of the past, a, an anger I cannot let go? Am I paralyzed by a resentment against another person? Just eating away, I'm always coming back to it and paralyzed, but I cannot live freely because it's binding me, this constant memory. Am I paralyzed by some repeated sin, some habit of sin, which is holding me back and pulling me down? What is it? It's each one of us is different. So let's ask the Lord to free us as well, if not from the physical paralysis of this parable, this, this event of the life of the Lord, but rather for whatever it is that paralyzes each one of us.
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And I hope the scribes were amazed as well. Not just everyone else. I hope they too were amazed. We never have seen anything like this. And I hope perhaps they were, well, they're not actually, because they soon become critical again. But we hope that for a moment, they were a little less less inclined to pull down someone nearby. And so he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd gathered about him, and he taught them. And as he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd gathered about him, and he taught them. For as he says at one other place, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Remember the time he escapes across the sea to try to get a break, and they're there? And he taught them. He fed them. He taught them the word. Nourishment. Spiritual nourishment. Light for the path. We all need that. He taught them. He is Christ the teacher. He teaches us as we read his holy word in the sacred holy gospels and in so many other ways. He taught us. He teaches us. And they gathered about him. And as he passed on, going by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. One commentary read once said that Levi's sacrifice was greater than that of the fishermen. James and John could always go back to their father's boats. But Levi was quitting his job. (laughs) I don't think that... Herod was going to be in a forgiving mood for one of his missing tax collectors. So Levi really was just, he was going out into the deep. There's that great famous painting by Caravaggio that Pope Francis so often talks about, where you just see the finger of Jesus just like that, just from the edge of the painting, as pointing, like the finger of God at creation that we see in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I'll always remember that because during the recent conclave, I looked up and that's where I was in the Sistine Chapel, right? Like that. I thought, oh dear, what's going on here? Adam is going, God's going, so this is the thing. So the finger is reaching out, the creative finger of God, of, of Jesus. It's a creation to be called. And you see, Matthew or Levi going, who me? Not me. (laughs) Yes, you. And he followed him and gave up everything. Let's pray that we will, in our own different situations, when the finger of Christ points to us and says, follow me in whatever form it takes, And it is, as Caravaggio could see, like the creative finger of God. Let it create within each one of us new life. So that, like Matthew, we will be willing to do what he did, which was greater than anyone else. He just left everything with no hope of going back and followed Jesus. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's as simple as that. Not easy, but simple. And as he sat at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. He's not with a good crowd. Many were following him and they were of this people who were often not sort of 
you know, we think that's sort of rejected by the people, but these were often pretty rough characters who were traitors and criminals and things like this. The, I, don't, I don't think St. Mark or anywhere in the gospel is romanticizing this. We always think, oh, poor sinner, and yes. But no, these were really, you know, bad people, <laughs> people who were, were pretty rough. Uh, it's not like pretty. They were, they were pretty rough. They weren't pretty. They were rough. But here we have this, the, this squad of scribes is following around. And uh, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, they don't have the nerve to say to him. Do you ever notice that when we criticize people? We always put a little uh, protection there. So they say to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Which is very good to know because though there are some of us and all of us at some time who think we're righteous, fortunately, uh, the Lord is calling us even though we're not all that righteous. We're all sinners. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or as we say in the Hail Mary, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. That is not just, again, a technical sort of pretty title we should use. All of us, in so many ways, should not be de- we should not be depressed by our sins, for God loves us, and he does call us. And none of us should take pride in any righteousness, and especially when we're comparing ourselves to others or criticizing other people. So it's good to know. He calls, again, it's the crowd. It's all those people, including us, you, me, and everyone. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why it's always um, dangerous spiritually when a group of fervent believers becomes, sees itself as a group of the righteous. You know, I think I've often repeated that famous little poem, if you seek a perfect church, when you find it, join it. On that day, it will cease to be a perfect church. So we got to keep thinking of that, you know, and the worst troubles in the history of the church, the various heresies and things like that have come from not the tax collectors and sinners, the people that Jesus, it's from the rather elite types, the highly educated, the um, scholarly types who, or the pure, who formed a more perfect group. That's just, we got to resist that because our Lord, he's not, That's not what he's about. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I think he's saying, none of you have no need of a physician. But I have come not to call the righteous, which is fortunate because there aren't any who are beyond the need of my mercy, but the sinners, which is fortunate for them too because all of them are receiving my mercy. And that's Levi and his friends, the rough lot over there at the table, and even more in need, the scribes and the Pharisees. Their need is greater than that of Levi and his friends. We pray that they listened in their hearts and maybe some of them may have responded. Let's pray that each one of us does so as well. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Fasting is for 
the times of repentance. It's a time to remind us of the absence that we experience, the absence that we need to be attentive to in our own lives, where we, we recognize what's missing. A time for us to be prayerfully attentive to the presence of God. And he says, when the bridegroom is with them, they don't fast. And we, of course, when we see the Lord face to face, that's not the time for fasting either. And we, when we're, but we do need to from time to time. But they weren't using fasting as a way of preparing spiritually. They were comparing who's fasting more. I guess who's fasting faster. There they are. You're fasting, we're fasting, they're fasting, you're not enough. Do you ever get that, how we compare, sort of check the dials spiritually? I've got 22% fasting, you've only got 21. And low those are there, they got 48% fasting, and you're not, something wrong with you? You've only got 21% of, you know, we fast on this day and that day. <laughs> they're using something which is inherently a good thing. We shouldn't just go, you know, oink, oink, you know, We've got to let go. Food, certainly. Even donuts. Food, yes. Candies even, and Lent, perhaps. Even chocolate bars, whatever. But I think also we should fast from, you know, use our time, fast from useless use of time. That's important. It's a spiritual discipline, and our Lord is all in favor of fasting. But not, they're comparing you're a better faster than this. And that's the problem with religious people. We can get like, you know, uh, how many rosaries do you say? And uh, do you say this? Or how many do that? And that's not the right way to go. Our Lord is fasting is a spiritual discipline. It's not a, um, a marker of how much more religious this group is to that. And so we've always got to watch the competitive instinct. And I think it's very especially so not to get looking at others and say, I should, but also we get into this a lot, you know, uh, this is how it happens of late. <laughs> People saying, you know, who's poorer, who's not, who's humbler, who's not, this way or that way, humble or what. This is insane. It's also arrogant. We should simply say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I think maybe we should hand out to the newly baptized, well, maybe they wouldn't fit if they're little babies, blinders. You know, so we can look ahead and don't look to the right or the left at what other people are doing. You know, who's doing this, who's not. This is madness. It's not the spirit of our Lord Jesus. See, he says here, don't be in a fasting competition. So let's ask God's mercy for the times that we've been <clears throat> taking a sly and careful note of the people to the right and the left about whether they're quite up to the proper, up to snuff. And when it comes to whatever it is that we consider to be spiritually the way you should be these days. And let's just pay attention to Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And forget about other people. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh skins. And this is just practically true. Again, he's using a, you know, an obvious, simple image from sewing and from drinking, two very helpful things in life. You, you know, you, if one little thing is shrinking and it's not an unshrunk cloth, it's gonna rip. This doesn't make sense. You've gotta have, it's gotta start afresh. You can't start patching. And the same thing too with the wineskins, as they get older, they will burst if the new vibrant wine is, you have to have a little flexibility, they gotta grow. And so I think it's a, it's a message to us in our lives. There are things where we patch, I suppose, or where we, but what the Lord calls us to is a whole new container that the old brittle self is perhaps too dry 
for the new wine of the gospel. And he doesn't just ask us to do a little patching or a little, uh, you know, keep the old and sort of pour the new into it. He's asking us for a full transformation. Our whole life. To you, O Lord. This is what is symbolized in the signs external to baptism. And it's made real in the fact of baptism. Going into the water and up again. The new life. Not just patching. So when we come before the Lord every day, we should say, Lord, help me. Let me be new wineskins for the fresh wine of the gospel. Let me not cling to my old habits which are not worthy of you. Let me not just give a bit of myself, but all to you, O Lord. And not just say, I've got a little piece of my life where I'll put the Lord in my Christian life, but most of it I'm going to leave untouched. I'll patch my basic life with a little patch of Christianity. That's just not enough. He asks for all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And I don't know whether there ever was a time when we could have, you know, when we could be sort of mediocre Christians. I guess there never has been a time like that. But sure isn't now. And what we're facing in this world, we've got to be transformed. We've got to be on fire with the gospel, to use a different image. Not just sort of a little perking it up a bit. And that's what, uh, well, our the pastoral plan for our diocese. Start with prayer, reach out to the scattered, care for the gathered, vibrant parishes, vocations, serve the needy, evangelize society, do it all. You know, I think our Lord calls us to this. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisee said to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to them, to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Twice in this chapter 2 of Mark, he uses the term the Son of Man. In a sense, it means human. And one translation simply replaces it with mortal. But that's good grief. That's the Son of Man of the book of Daniel. This is Jesus in his glory coming to judge is the context with which this term is used. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But we need to be attentive to the gift of the Sabbath. We have a problem with that in our society. You know, work, 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 work. We create our worth, we think, out of our busy, busy, busyness. So we need to stop and appreciate the palace in time that is the Sabbath. To have the ceremonies as the Jewish people do of ceasing the busyness being attentive to the Lord, the lighting of the candles of Sabbath Eve as it begins. And then the time to be with family, with God. The time when we, to be and not to do. Not busy, busy, but to be in the presence of the Lord we love and the ones we love and to have a heart that is at peace. And that is the Sabbath. It's made for us. It's a gift. It's the first pages of the Bible. Even the Lord himself is the creator, the Lord God. Six days on, one day off. It's the instructions that come from the manufacturer. We ignore it at our peril, even at a human level. But it's more than that. It is a glorious reality. We are to to be in the presence of the Lord. And so the Sabbath is not anything wrong with it. It's what we should be more attentive to. But not in a way that is legalistic. 
They were trying to protect the dignity of the Sabbath by hedging it with all kinds of little rules. Well, you can't simply say, I'm in favor of the Sabbath, but I never pay attention to it. Little rules are helpful at times, but we can't let them take over. We have to keep the broader context in mind. Or we get like the groundskeeper in uh, Caddyshack who blows up the golf course to get that gopher. There's an awful lot of wisdom in that to see how often are we like that. You know, boom, boom. You know. And he never does get that little. We, we focus in on the, the point, and it's sort of correct. It's a correct point. Not, you know, but we blow up everything to get it, and we miss the context. And that's just not the way to go. So our Lord says, the Son of Man, the Sabbath is made for us. And so many things in our faith as well. We have to have them, understand them in the broader context. And I think our Holy Father is, is trying to help us in this these days by stressing that point. That yes, all these points are, but to see the broader context, which is the loving mercy of God and the call of the Lord to salvation. And we need to always see all of the great realities in that context as our Lord is teaching us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak thus? It is blasphemy. How, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your pallet and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd gathered about him, and he taught them. And as he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As he sat at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh skins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
And he said to them, Have you never heard what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.